Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and joining me today is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing quite well. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited about this episode. It's actually a topic I have I never heard of until it was suggested to us. I hadn't heard of this person either, and I'm very much into his music now. Nice. Well, it's kind of ridiculous because I actually knew the music, but I didn't know about anything else. So it is really nice to have this episode just a week after our last one. We're probably more excited than the listeners (laughs) to finally be (laughs) weekly. I mean, if we had the time and means, we would be doing this twice a week. But, you know, that's a long-term goal for when we make our podcast millions and can afford it. And this was a listener suggestion as well. This one was actually lifted from another podcast group, but this is not a party foul. Missy mentioned it on the Vanished podcast group, and Vanished is about missing people. So this does not fit with that show. And so I was given permission to kind of take it over here to Insight. So thank you, Missy, for bringing us this case of Elliot Smith, the musician whose death by stabbing is still considered an open case. The coroner has never made a determination between suicide and homicide. To give a quick biography of Elliot Smith, he was born Stephen Paul Smith in Omaha, Nebraska in August of 1969. By the time he was six months old, his parents had split and his mom relocated to the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, where their extended family lived. His father went on to Portland, Oregon. When Elliot was around five, he started visiting his dad for a week or two every summer. And he grew up around music. His extended family was very musical. Yeah, his dad bought him his first guitar as well. I think he was around 12. Yeah, when Elliot was four, his mom, Bunny, remarried a man named Charlie. So he's got a great name, but that's that's about all we have in common. Because (laughs) even though... Even though Elliot was described as happy and well-adjusted as a child, he later said that his stepfather was hard to please and he spoke about abuse. He was hesitant to go into much detail in public and his friends who he confided in were just as reluctant after his death to say much, except that there was abuse involved. There is some backing up to this as Charlie wrote Elliot letters asking for forgiveness. Charlie and Bunny had two more children, and Elliot's Texas friend said that he had absolutely no sibling jealousy toward his half-siblings, and he was extremely protective of them and very close. Yeah. At about 14, things came to a head in his home with his mother and his stepfather. He was reportedly becoming more rebellious, and now this is hard to judge. Kids naturally start pushing for more independence as they enter their teens, And sometimes independence-seeking behaviors are perceived as rebellion, especially in kids who come from an authoritarian household. Exerting independence with a controlling parental figure can cause lots of conflict. So Elliot called his father at one point and asked to come live with him in Portland. Now, his father had already remarried and had two very small daughters. Elliot's relationship with his stepmother seemed to be pretty distant. It was more that they just didn't click than that there was anything really wrong with it. And I mean, they wouldn't have had that much time together either. If he was only being, if he was only there for a week, a year or two weeks a year, there really isn't time for them to bond. Right. And her parenting experience involved a baby and a toddler. And here comes a 14 year old boy. Exactly. I mean, that's very, that's different. That's something I know even when my kids were little, I had a harder time even just identifying with my friends who had teenagers. It's just a different skill set. But so regardless, while this home wasn't abusive, Elliot may not have completely felt at home, but he did have considerably more freedom. And it would have been a big culture shock for Elliot moving from Texas into contrast to the liberal and free-spirited Oregon. Yeah, absolutely. These are two parts of our country with very huge cultural differences. In junior high, Elliot began writing his own music, and in high school, he played the clarinet in the school band, but he also started a band called Stranger Than Fiction with his friend Tony Lash. They put together an album, and Tony said it was ambitious, but the results were not stellar, which is pretty much every high school band. So after he graduated from high school, Tony Lash stayed in Portland and started working in the production industry, but Elliot went to Hampshire College in Massachusetts. 
and he graduated in the, you know, normal four years. And it's at this point that he stopped using Stephen and started going by Elliot sometime in late high school or early college. I've read that it came from the nickname a high school girlfriend gave him. Yeah, something to do with the movie E.T. and there's the character called Elliot. Right. And so he dropped Stephen and started going by Elliot Smith, not legally, but just in general. So the band Elliot Smith is most readily associated with is Heat Miser. And it's during college that this band started, but it really formed when Elliot graduated and moved back to Portland. A college friend, Neil Gust, who was in Heat Miser originally in college, also moved to Portland. They were joined by Tony Lash, who was in Stranger Than Fiction. Then Brant Peterson ended up rounding out the lineup of Heat Miser. But even while he was in Heat Miser, Elliot already began working on his solo work. And in 1994, he released his first solo album. His biggest break onto the commercial scene came when his song Miss Misery was nominated for an Oscar as part of Goodwill Hunting. This was the year of the Titanic movie, so Celine Dion won for The Heart Will Go On. All the nominees performed their songs on Oscar night, and this was by far the biggest audience Elliot Smith had ever had. I read that he didn't initially want to appear in the telecast and that he only agreed after the Oscar producers told him that if he didn't, they'd get someone else to perform it in his place. He kind of went back and forth with, well, I want to sit. No, now you have to do this. Well, I want to wear this. Well, no, you have to wear that. Yeah. I think that giving up creative control of even just the performance of his song was extremely difficult for him. Oh, definitely. He would rather perform his song his way or not perform it at all. Those were pretty much his options. But when you're in the more commercial industry and the Oscars you kind of lose some of that control. And that was extremely difficult for him. Yeah, I think, yeah, this with this with during this period, with all the Oscar hype and the increased attention, I think that he would have been struggling with it all. He was recording an album at the same time. And, you know, he played everything. He played the drums, he played the guitar, the piano, as well as doing the vocals. Then he had to do all these interviews with people all over the world about the nomination which would have been something that he wouldn't have wanted to do. I mean, he was known to have tremendously low self-esteem and all of this, plus surviving on very little sleep, he would have been exhausted and overwhelmed, to say the least. I don't know if you watched any interviews with him, but they're they're painful yes. to watch. Yes. He is not comfortable with the interviews. There's one where they asked about a tattoo on his arm. So what's that tattoo? And he's like, it's a bull from a children's book. And the guy's like, oh, okay, all right. Like he doesn't, he wouldn't give a lot of information in the interviews. They were awkward. He wasn't comfortable. He was obviously not comfortable. So he wanted to be a musician, but the fame that came with it was not necessarily something he welcomed. He wanted the attention on his music and not on him. And not long after this was his suicide attempt, right? He did have a suicide attempt in this time There are actually reports of possibly more than one suicide attempt. None of them seem to be as clear-cut as, oh, he tried to slit his wrist and we took him to the hospital. They they were kind of more, what's that mark? Oh, you know, I tried to stab myself or something. Yeah. So I just want a side note on the Oscar thing. This is has nothing to do with anything. But to be eligible for the Oscar, the song has to be originally composed for the movie. Now, Miss Misery had already been written and recorded, but it wasn't released. So everyone had to pretend it hadn't been recorded before Goodwill Hunting came along because it was not written for Goodwill Hunting specifically. Not that that matters now, particularly since it didn't win the Oscar, but it's just a little tidbit should you find yourself on Jeopardy one day. (laughs) So that's really the basic biography of Elliot Smith. His biography is not as clear cut as you would think. I got his biography out of the library and read it. And then I read articles that said, no, 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 that's all wrong. Here, this is wrong, that's wrong. There's different stories in different articles and different people talking. So that's why we've kept the biography very basic, because these are the things we're pretty sure happened. But not everything is as clear cut as this. But we do need to talk about one more thing before we talk about Elliot's relationship with his girlfriend and his ultimate death 
And that's that Elliot dealt with depression, alcoholism, and drug use. Now, if you listen to his music, it's semi-autobiographical and you can hear it in like all of his songs. His most commercially successful song is called Miss Misery, after all. And the press actually dubbed him Mr. Misery. His music is beautiful. You can tell that he writes from the heart. It's really touching. It is. And one of the things I really like about his music is if you don't listen to the lyrics, you kind of feel like you're listening to this slightly punk modern folk music. And then you listen to the lyrics and you're like, oh, this isn't fun. This is dark and tragic. And yeah. It's the beautiful melodies with the dark words that really pack a punch more so than than had it been, you know, heavy metal music with those lyrics. I find the same thing. But when I was listening to it and not listening to the words, I was, it was making me feel relaxed and calm. And then you listen to the words and go, well, hang on. That is the opposite of how I should be feeling. It's really a fascinating way to write. And I think his it makes it more haunting. And especially when... You look at the entirety of his life, it really kind of hits it. Yes. Do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about his drug use? Sure. So there are conflicting reports as to when and where he started using heroin and then later cocaine. Elliot himself said in an interview that he was on drugs for two years, which would put the start date at around the year 2000. This also lines up with his friends who said that Elliot's girlfriend, Jennifer Chiba, is the one who introduced him to hard drugs. Heat Miser bandmate, Tony Lash, has said that they weren't the hard partying rock stars when they toured in the 1990s and Elliot was quiet and reserved and he didn't like to be surrounded by a lot of people. It is reported that at the height of his addiction, he had a daily habit that cost around $1,500, and that is crazy to me. That's $1,500 every day. Even with the drugs being expensive, that's a lot of drugs. And on top of that, he was also taking potentially fatal amounts of prescription tranquilizers. And he would often talk about suicide, and he did try to overdose on a couple of occasions. Yeah, he was on psychotropic drugs as well possibly from drug-induced psychosis. I don't really know. He was on a lot of medication, both prescribed and illicit. Yes. So it just seems to me that his life did start to deteriorate once he began using crack and then became addicted to heroin. I mean, his neighbours reported that they saw him walking around the streets alone late at night, just muttering to himself. So he continued to write and record music during the height of his addiction However, his live performances just became a hot mess. In a 2001 performance, he forgot the words to his own songs. And around this time, he also started to suffer from paranoia. I mean, he was telling his friends that a white van was following him around everywhere and that he thought that DreamWorks, who, was, who he was signed to at the time, he thought that DreamWorks was trying to steal his music from his computer he even threatened suicide to get out of that contract with DreamWorks. But I mean, he was barely eating and he was barely sleeping by this point. And I heard that he was living off a diet of ice cream. And that really jives with the, the medica- I mean, the drugs he was taking are stimulants which suppress your appetite. So he was really living off ice cream and drugs at this point. I mean, this is a bit off topic, but reading this, there was there is a lot of parallels between him and Amy Winehouse with how the downhill spiral went. Yes, and you'll actually see a lot also with Kurt Cobain and his entire story, which feels kind of like low-hanging fruit to draw parallels from them, you know, from the Pacific Northwest to having a death that's suspicious to some people, to having a woman in their life that may have been feeding their addictions There's a lot between these stories, and I kind of wonder if we took any musician who had a serious drug issue, if we would just see these parallels. It it kind of becomes the psychology of the addict. So while he contributed the song Needle in the Hay for the movie The Royal Tenenbaums... One of my favourites. 
actually probably my absolute favorite movie. I actually saw this for the first time under the guise of research for this story. And if any of you out there have not seen the movie, you need to change that as soon as possible. But anyway, he was also supposed to contribute a cover to the song Hey Jude for the movie, but he just couldn't get it done in time because of his addiction. And there is some foreshadowing here. Needle in the Hay is the song played during an attempted suicide in the Royal Tenenbaums. And that brings us up to May 2002. And this is a time where he performed with Wilco in Chicago. Did you happen to listen to Wilco for your research too? I actually like Wilco. (laughs) Oh, good. You already, I feel like I keep giving you more music to listen to because we have another show coming up that has a little bit of a musical aspect to it. So, okay, good. You're on to Wilco. That other subject, I'm addicted. That's high on my playlist at the moment too. But That's so awesome. I can't wait to talk about it. <laughs> but anyway, May 2002, he performed with Wilco in Chicago. And during his 50-minute set, he couldn't complete a single song. He blamed it on his left hand being asleep or numb. But for whatever reason, he hardly performed live that entire year. And it wasn't only his career that began to suffer during to, due to this drug addiction. His friendships did as well. He cut off nearly all of his friends because they attempted to intervene in both his drug use and his self-harm behaviours. And he just didn't want to you know, either admit he had a problem or accept help for the problem at that time. So Elliot never found the typical approach to drug addiction terribly helpful for him. He just wasn't interested in your usual 12-step style programs that they offer in AA and NA. He did eventually find himself at the Neurotransmitter Restoration Centre in late summer or early fall of 2002. And this is more of a physical approach to drug and mental health treatments It involves giving the patient intravenous amino acids and the information out there on how they do this is really interesting. And if this was a podcast about alternative alternative medical approaches, we'd get into that a bit more. But this is a story about Elliot Smith, so we'll leave it at that. So regardless, in 2002, Elliot completed his treatment and at that stage he was off all illicit drugs and even some of his psychiatric medications. As Charlie said, he said he was on some antipsychotics at the time, although he didn't have any psychosis, but he may have been prescribed it for drug-related psychosis, but we don't know if that's the case. Obviously, people's medical records are are private even after their death. So we're just going on what he has said in interviews after he got clean. And he wasn't that forthcoming with issues. And as you said earlier, Charlie, his friends seem to shut up shop when it comes to Elliot's problems when they speak to reporters as well. Right. His friends and family, everyone seems very respectful of of letting him keep his privacy in death. So... We're pretty much caught up on the backstory. Let's talk about what led to his death in 2003. And we're going to go ahead and start with his move to Los Angeles in 1999 and his meeting of Jennifer Chiba. So there are a couple of stories out there on exactly how and when they met. In one story, she asked a friend to introduce them after she saw him perform. Another story, it's the complete reverse. He saw her perform and wanted to meet her. According to her, when they got together, they talked about French authors and some really highbrow stuff. However, people outside their relationship seem to believe that their relationship was mostly about drug connections and that Jennifer was the drug connection for Elliot when he came to L.A. It just seems the story that Jennifer tells is all sweet and romantic like a fairy tale, but I don't know if that really is what happened in reality. It doesn't seem to be supported by anybody except her, to be honest. Their relationship has actually been described as not unlike Sid Vicious and his girlfriend Nancy, which is a really famously tumultuous relationship that ended in Nancy's death. According to a lawsuit that Jennifer filed after Elliot's death, she said their relationship began in the summer of 1999, but in other places it said that it really just started a year before when she moved in with him and that they didn't really have a very serious 
romantic relationship before that. So let's talk about who Jennifer even is. She was born in Tokyo and raised in Texas, so they had that Texas connection in common. She was, at the time, a member of the band Happy Ending. She has a master's degree in art therapy, she's a licensed therapist, and she works with abused and troubled children. So that paints one picture of her. And they do point back to the fact that she was trained in art therapy, or, or therapy, a bit later on in the story. But we'll get back to that. Yes, we will get back to that. It paints one picture of her that she works with abused and troubled children, and another that she's a drug dealer who hooks up musicians with drugs. She's been described as angry, entitled, and volatile. And I will say some of the negative things about Jennifer have been said on the record by people identifying themselves, but a lot come from these quote-unquote unnamed sources, so you'll just have to take that as you will. She and Elliot did move in together about a year before his death, and in the lawsuit she filed against his estate, she claimed that Elliot had promised to support her financially for life in exchange for putting her own career on hold to be to basically take care of the home and work as his agent. Their relationship, like I said, has been compared to another famous tumultuous, tumultuous, I'm not even going to say that again, another famous volatile couple. I won't even edit that out because <laughs> people need to see behind the curtain. Podcasters can't pronounce words. Okay. They were compared to this volatile couple because fighting wasn't uncommon in their relationship. Allie, do you want to tell us a little bit about the fight that happened on October 21st, 2003? Sure. So, the their fight actually hit the ultimate peak on this day, October twenty first, two thousand and three. But why the argument started is unclear. Again, we have unnamed sources stating that the argument may have been over Jennifer needing a ride to an appointment. She wasn't able to drive because she had a DUI that she received two months earlier. And I mean, although Elliot was in his first year of recovery she was still drinking and or using drugs depending on what you read that could have been the source of many fights of theirs to be honest another unnamed source said that Elliot had been threatening to leave Jennifer and that could have been the reason for this fight however they had also been fighting on and off about a single for Jennifer's band that Elliot had become involved in and he was starting to take over how he wanted it done but whatever the reason for the fight Jennifer said that during this particular fight, Elliot had threatened suicide. She said that this is the norm and this generally is what happened when they did have a fight. So she goes into the bathroom and locks the door and Elliot starts banging on it. She says that she was only in there for five to ten minutes, but she decides to have a shower while she's in there, I guess. And when she gets out, she, she hears a scream and rushes out. She sees Elliot standing in the middle of the room with his back to her and when he turns around, a knife is sticking out of his chest. She rushes over and pulls the knife out of his chest. He then stumbles a few steps and collapses. She, of course, then calls 911 and administers first aid according to the instructions of the 911 dispatcher. It was then reported that she saw two cuts in his chest. The 911 call was placed at 12.18pm. By 1.10pm, Elliot was admitted to hospital and he had surgery to repair his heart where it had been pierced by the knife. At 1.36pm, Elliot Smith was declared dead from his injuries. There was a handwritten note found at the home and it simply said, I'm so sorry, love Elliot, God forgive me. This note was undated. In the coroner's report, the contents of the note are recorded as having Elliot's name spelled incorrectly, which has led to a lot of speculation. However, the investigators have confirmed that this is merely a typo on the report. Yes. His name is spelled correctly on the actual note. And it doesn't seem that anybody who can recognize his handwriting has disputed that it was he wrote the note. An autopsy was performed, and you can actually find the report online. I was sitting in a McDonald's play place while my two-year-old played while I read the report. 
So, you know, podcasters, what are you going to do? So the weapon was recovered at the scene, and it was an eight-inch single-edge kitchen knife with a tapered blade. We would more commonly just call this a French chef's knife. There were no clear fingerprints on the knife handle, even though we know that even if it was a suicide, then Elliot and Jennifer touched it. If it was a murder, only Jennifer touched it. But it would have been covered in blood because it did hit his heart. And even if Jennifer just pulled it out, I don't think it's reasonable to expect there to be prints on it. And also, I mean, even if it was, let's just say it was a homicide and she did kill him, his fingerprints probably would still be on it. I mean, it's a kitchen knife from their house. It was on a cutting board, apparently. So he may have just been using it. He may have used it leading up to it. So This all happened at lunchtime. Who knows who was preparing lunch? Exactly. There were two stab wounds. And in the autopsy, they're numbered. But it's very clear the coroner says this is just for convenience. He does not know which order these stab wounds happened. So we'll just stick with his sequence for clarity's sake. Yes. Wound number one was slightly right to left, slightly downward, and no more than two inches deep. And this one was potentially fatal. Wound number two was close to number one and pretty much parallel. It was about half an inch to the right of the first wound and a little less than an inch lower. Directionally, it was the same. And it was, this one was about five to seven inches deep and it was fatal. Some of the damage and the depths of the wounds are unclear because of surgery cuts interfering with exact measurements. Yes. Both stab wounds were consistent with being self-inflicted. Now, one quick thing about the angles. I used to watch a lot of CSI-type shows when I used to have time for TV. And they would always measure the wound and then decide the position of the victim and the height of the attacker. And everything would point to one single person. Now, the truth is, angles of knife wounds are hugely approximate. Because our bodies are dynamic, muscles move, our internal organs can even move position. So it's impossible for someone to say, like you see in CSI, this stab wound was clearly made by someone who's six feet tall. I mean, the angle is slightly downward, and that is literally all a coroner can really determine. You know, I did read that on Elliot Smith's website that I assume that the family run. It says that the stab wounds, as you said, entered in a downward motion. And that in homicides, it's usually a vertical wound. However, they try and explain that away as in, no, it still could be a homicide because this is because Jennifer is slightly shorter than Elliot. And that would mean the knife would enter in a downward motion. But I'm not sure that line of thinking makes sense to me. Because if someone was shorter, wouldn't that mean that it would enter at a slightly upward motion? And I think it really just depends on how someone would hold it would they I mean we're both on video Skype so we can show each other but nobody else knows what we're doing I mean if she came at him overhand it would be slightly downward even if she's shorter than him it's not like she was stabbing him in the head it was the chest which I'm assuming she could reach and overhand but if she came and jabbed him from you know the gut underbelly kind of underhand then it would be upward I mean I really don't think that the positioning of the wounds and I feel confident saying this because the coroner agrees that the positioning of the wounds doesn't rule out either possibility, murder or suicide. It means nothing. It means, it really means nothing. And depending on if Elliot had his arms up or if someone was stabbing him or down would change his muscle position, which could change where it appeared the wound was and what direction. Good point. But these are not the only injuries he had. Do you want to walk us through his other injuries? Yes. So he had two fresh wounds to note of. And it was a small, shallow cut to his right forearm and a small, shallow cut to the base of his left thumb. And neither of these were deeper than 132 inches. He had abrasions to his knees and a few healing bruises. He also had random scars that... Look, I'm not a mental health professional, nor do I play one on TV. But in my opinion, these scars do seem like possible result of previous self-harming incidents. He didn't have any scars that showed any previous attempts by the same method, such as scars on his wrists. And there were also no recent track marks. The toxicology report shows that Elliot was sober at the time of his death. No illegal substances were found in his system. 
the prescription medications that were in his system were at therapeutic or sub-therapeutic levels, and there was no evident signs that he was abusing them. There was also medications detected that are consistent for those used in depression, anxiety, and ADHD. The ADHD medication in his system was a stimulant, but like I said, it wasn't at an excessive level. So it was just really what you would use to deal with those certain ailments. Even being at sub-therapeutic levels, he, there are statements saying that in August he gave up like red meat and some more of his psychiatric medications. Now, ADHD medications do leave the system very quickly. However, anti-anxiety and antidepressants can stay in the system. So it's possible he hadn't even taken them too recently. Yes. So... The medical examiner left it undetermined between murder and suicide. Elliot Smith's death continues to be open. But that doesn't stop people from having opinions, of course. So we're going to walk through the case for murder and the case for suicide. So those who believe it was homicide do think it was Jennifer Chiba who was the attacker. It was only the two of them in the house. But as we walk through that side... We're not accusing of her of murder. We're more or less just walking through what was in the investigation and what has been said in interviews. And the honest truth is that none of us were there. And if the medical examiner and the police, who have full access to all of the information, can't point definitively towards murder or suicide, we can't either. Exactly. We'll just point at the facts and you can make your own mind up. Yes. Let's start with the argument for murder. Um, The first thing is there were no hesitation marks noted on his chest. Generally, when someone cuts themselves on purpose, they will leave a mark, usually superficial, where they're building the courage to do it, or they start and they stop because they're not entirely sure that's what they want to do. Now, the biggest thing with hesitation marks is... Yes, they're usually there. However, they can be obscured by the actual wound. Because they're superficial, if they're really close to the eventual fatal wound, the fatal wound may include the skin where that hesitation mark was. And so it won't be obvious. It won't be noticeable. Look, I would imagine that if you're distraught and emotional from a fight, I would think that there would be less likely for there even to be any hesitation marks. We know that Elliot was struggling with depression. And with the stress of a big fight with Jennifer, I think it's reasonable to think that he wouldn't be thinking along the lines of hesitating and he may have just been acting on his emotions. I don't think the lack of hesitation marks necessarily points 100% to a homicide. I think I would, would be more likely to question it if it was hours after the fight or the day after the fight, but not during the fight. And we know that His friends had said that Elliot had shown him a scar on his chest where he may have attempted to do this earlier. So, look, he was was a known cutter. He would have known how the knife felt. He would have known the pain he was about to experience. He may not have hesitated. That's true. I was reading a... Actually, um, if I remember to send it to you, I'll put it up for show notes. It was actually a guide for police officers investigating suicides and what to look for it was actually really interesting as someone who is not a police officer but likes to learn stuff it was actually really interesting and he had said that stabbing deaths were often like dramatic like that yes like there were moments of passion they weren't nobody stands there and like plans stabbing themselves those are ones that happen generally in more passionate almost like You know, like you'd expect a crime of passion, only, you know, this is a suicide of passion. The other thing that people point to is who in the world stabs themselves, let alone stabs themselves twice to kill themselves. So two to four percent of suicides involve cutting, and most of those are actually wrists. Even in an uncommon method of suicide, stabbing yourself in the chest is even more uncommon It's also uncommon for self-inflicted stabbings that are not at the wrist to be successful because it's extremely difficult to stab yourself hard enough and often enough. You would have to have a really passionate emotion and energy-filled moment. 
Now, I thought when I first saw this, I said, how could it possibly be suicide? He stabbed himself twice. And then I looked it up. And generally, if someone does stab themselves in a suicide attempt, they stab themselves more than once, which kind of surprised me. But if you think about it, if someone slits their wrist, they often slit one and then the other. The other, yep. I guess stabbing yourself is similar, but I would think you'd stab yourself once and I don't know, doesn't that hurt? I mean, I'm not in this mindset, obviously, and that's why he, this police officer's guide said that these are passionate, emotional moments for someone to stab themselves as a suicide attempt. Which we knew he was it was happening because he was in a fight with someone he loved. And he was pounding on the door. He had done the, he threatened suicide before. He was caught in the moment. The knife was there. I mean, who knows? This was interesting because I saw this mentioned by the investigators, but I couldn't, I look, tried to look up stats. It's uncommon for someone to stab themselves through their clothes. Yes. And that they generally would take their shirt off or maybe they were generally, generally they just don't stab themselves through their clothes in the rare times that this is a method of suicide. But I couldn't find any stats on that or anything that really pointed towards that, how strong that is. Is this like something that really just never happens? They always take their shirt off? Yeah. Or can it be... I don't know. No, but Elliot's friends, um, they quickly spoke up and said that it was unusual that he wouldn't be wearing a, a T-shirt because he was self-conscious about his body and he wouldn't be caught dead without a shirt. So that doesn't seem strange to me. If he was that self-conscious about his body, he may have not even thought about that. And again, caught in the heat of the moment, he mightn't have, I mean, would he really have thought, I better take my T-shirt off? Like I said, I tried to look it up, and I'm kind of unsure why stabbing through the clothes is so odd. But Again, this this wasn't hours after the fight or a day after the fight. This was in the heat of the moment. You wouldn't have been thinking clearly. Actually, let's go ahead and talk about, you had mentioned the art therapy and her extensive training, which would include first aid. Jennifer pulled the knife out. Yes. Which is... Anyone who's taken any first aid class knows that if there is a puncture and the I, whatever punctured is still there, you leave that there because it may be stopping the blood. Yeah, and you dress you dress the dress the wound around the object that's in the wound. Yep, and then let the doctor take it out. Yes, and that she would have known that. I mean, I know that, and I've done Girl Scout first aid. That's my extent of first aid training. However. This was a moment. Would I have thought that? I mean, this wasn't someone she didn't know or have emotions about. It's possible she just freaked out. And add on to that, Jennifer had her own drug and alcohol issues that may have been may have impaired her logical thinking at the time. We're really just knocking these out. <laughs> I was like, we're going to give you guys all the information. You can make your own decision. Okay, let us dismiss all of these. I, mean, <laughs> I think I'm just pointing out why this is undetermined death we can go we can do that on the other side of things too we'll do it on the other side so the potential defensive wounds is another big one he had a wound on his forearm a fairly new cut on his forearm and one on his thumb and I looked at the charts and then I sat there with my arms in front of myself figuring it out and if he did put his hands up and out and tried to cover his face or his body against a knife wound, That's it. it's consistent with that. Yes. The way it's not consistent is in this police officer's guide to investigating suicides, which is, I'm telling you, this is like my new Bible for suicides, I guess. <laughs> it was mentioned that defensive wounds from a knife attack are usually severe because the person isn't holding back. And he had two nicks that were less than a one and, what, 32 inches thick. which is nothing. Deep, which is nothing. I mean, that's like a paper cut depth. I can't imagine that if she's stabbing at him or anyone stabbing at anyone and he had his arms up protecting himself, he would barely get nicked by the knife on his arms. I mean, we can go back to the Zach Whitman case and... Greg had defensive wounds, and they they were quite deep. Right. And this was a little pen knife, not a kitchen knife. Right, yes. And so this is an eight-inch knife, an exactly. eight-inch blade that leaves, like, these teeny tiny little nicks on them, and there were only two of them. 
So I will say these do look like defensive wounds, and I don't have an explanation for how he got them otherwise, but it, it doesn't, they don't really jive with what you would expect to see from a defensive wound. And the last thing was he had plans for his future. He had projects coming up. He had plans for albums. There is a rumor that he thought Jennifer might be pregnant. Oh, really? Or that she thought she might be pregnant. I saw it in two different places, but I only saw it in two places. So I'm really... She obviously wasn't pregnant, but that... There was some thought that he told someone that, oh, she has some good news. And then she told someone else after he died that she thought she was pregnant. You know, so he had plans for his future. And generally, it's believed that people who are suicidal don't make plans for their future. Well, exactly. He was really excited about this new album. It was a new sound that he was more into. He was working on a soundtrack for another independent movie as you said, he cut out all you know refined sugars and red meats and his pres- a lot of his prescription drugs. He was, you know, looking towards the future and looking at you know, making a go at being healthy. And he was making plans. I mean, you cut out these things because you want to live a better life when you're 65. You know, yes. that's why you cut out refined sugar so that you don't end up with heart disease or diabetes or whatever you think refined sugar links to. So why is he depriving himself of things in the moment to benefit him tomorrow when he plans on not going to tomorrow? Exactly. But that also assumes he's planning the suicide and it's not a heat of the moment, passion, kind of snapping moment. Exactly. So the argument for suicide. I mean, I think the first one is that he had a history of depression and previous suicide attempts have been reported. Like, 70% of successful suicides are committed by people who have a previous attempt. He did try suicide before. He has he told people that he tried suicide before. He did try cutting himself before. You know, it, people seem to think that, you know, it couldn't have been suicide because suicides don't happen during the day. And then with the stabbing, most suicides by stabbing are in the neck and that didn't happen and it happened during a fight and suicides don't happen during a fight and so on and so on. But that kind of annoys me because not every situation is going to fit into a nice little box. You know, Elliot Smith isn't your average Joe. He had a lot of issues in the past with his childhood issues. Um, He had just become sober in the last 12 months. He was not in the best relationship by all reports he was a classic, tortured, emotional artist, and he isn't going to fit into a tidy category of what is deemed to be making normal decisions. So I, I don't put much stock into any argument that discounts suicide because it doesn't fit into your stock standard suicide. Exactly. And the not being on drugs or on a lot of his psychiatric medication means this is, he's not self-medicating his demons he's facing these issues without something to fall back on and then he has this huge argument that is causing him distress and he didn't have the drugs to lean on and that it makes his sobriety actually make me think maybe he'd be more likely to hurt himself in this moment exactly and look this would have been the first time in a long time that he wasn't medicating these issues with drugs and I did read that he did come off them all at once very quickly and that isn't the usual way to come off those prescription medications. No absolutely not. We talked about how Jennifer pulled the knife out and that kind of looked suspicious because of her training. However other than that she did administer first aid and she called 911. It's not as though she stabbed him, let him bleed for a while. He lived for over an hour after the stabbing. With the 911, she did report that there were two stab wounds. I don't know if you're going to get more into that. But I'm not sure how she would know that there was two stab wounds. I mean, Elliot was wearing a dark t-shirt and I imagine there would have been a lot of blood. So I'm not sure how she could have known that there were two stab wounds without... I'm digging around. 
Yeah, I have no idea. I would imagine that after he collapsed, his shirt was kind of crumpled in a weird position. I mean, did she pull it straight and look when she lifted his shirt? Did she look? I mean, my kids, I if you have kids, you know, like mouth wounds and head wounds bleed a lot, even for like little tiny scratches. And there are times where it's bleeding and I'm like, I don't even know what's going on exactly and how bad the wound is so i can't really imagine if they stabbed being stabbed in the heart made it easy i don't know how she knew there were two wounds that that does baffle me because according to her she did not see the stabbing so yes let's put that back up (laughs) in argument for murder how did she see those two wounds so again for suicide there was a note left it was undated it was short, except for the God help me or God forgive me or whatever. You know, it was just kind of a generic sorry note. I did read an article about suicide notes and what makes them more likely to be fake and not. And this one just kind of fell in the in-between range on that. It was, I mean, it was short and it was undated and usually there's a little bit more personal information in them, I guess. Again, when we're looking at a heat of the moment thing, it wasn't like he had sat down and wrote a goodbye note. It wasn't planned. And do we really know, did he write it then? Did he write it at the last fight? Jennifer has said that he threatened suicide a lot. So was it a previous time? And it could have not even been about the suicide, except for that little bit at the end. It kind of sounded like a generic sorry note, but maybe something did happen that was bigger that he felt really a huge weight over. He felt a huge weight in a lot of his life. Now, another argument for suicide is that in addition to sobriety and mental health issues and previous abuse and depression and all of that, he also was dealing with chronic pain. And not a lot of people are aware of this. In November 2002, shortly after he got out of rehab, he was at a Flaming Lips and Beck concert at the Universal Amphitheater in L.A. He saw this man over on the side being hassled, and he thought he was being assaulted by a group of larger men. But what he actually saw were off-duty police officers moonlighting as security guards. The man was sitting in a seat that wasn't his, and he was refusing to move. So the security guards were dragging him out of the theater threatening to and trying to handcuff him as he's fighting. So Elliot completely misunderstands what's happening. Yeah. And he decides to go over to the group. And he's trying to get them to get off of the man. And I've seen reports saying that the security guards never identified themselves. But regardless, Elliot started throwing punches at the mar- much larger men. He was pepper sprayed and taken down to the ground. He continued to resist while he was on the ground. And I mean, pepper spray hurts really badly. So he could have been reacting to the pain, but he was also very upset. He didn't know who these people were. And so he was actively resisting them. Both he and Jennifer, I'm not entirely sure. Jennifer must have jumped in at some point because both of them were arrested And then he claims that he was beaten up so badly by these off-duty police officers that he was dealing with pain all this whole time. He had an adverse reaction to the pain medication he was given. And when he died, there was no narcotic pain medication in his system. He did end up pleading no contest to reduce charge of disturbing the peace in order to avoid jail time, but there was a chance later on that he might face jail time I guess maybe if he didn't finish his probation at or community service or whatever so he did have that over him but he was in chronic pain that he was not treating at the time so he's in pain he's emotional he's upset he's depressed he has no drugs to lean on to self-medicate no alcohol either I mean that's kind of a recipe for someone who has had previous suicide attempts to try again exactly okay i think we're really falling pretty clearly on one side or the other even though i felt when i was researching this oh it could go either way but the more i look at it i i don't know what happened that night but i don't think it's so it's as clear as some people feel that he was murdered yeah, I know you read online and I mean these are obvious Elliot Smith fans, so they're 
probably going to side with the fact that he wouldn't kill himself. But they are so sure that she did it, that Jennifer killed him. And I don't know how, looking at all the evidence, talking it through today, I don't know how they can be so sure. No, I don't either. I think it's possible he was murdered. However, I I lean more towards it was a suicide and it was sad. And there's a lot to learn in what leads people down the roads they go in. And I think sometimes we lose that when we try to change what happened. So, I mean, we need to talk about why someone who had all the means in the world somehow wasn't getting the mental health help he really needed. That's something we should be discussing. Exactly. It's interesting to kind of think about where his career would have moved and what his new sound would have been as he started approaching things from a sober point of view. Exactly, because not long before he died, he did his first sober performance in a long time, and he was really excited about that. I mean, it's just tragic when someone is really working really hard to get on the path he wanted to be on, and he dies for any any cause, any reason, anything behind it. It could have been a heart attack. It's just really sad. He was an incredible talent. Exactly. So before we wrap up, I just want to let everyone know that our next mini episode for our Patreon supporters is going up on August 15th. So now is a great time to get on there. Anyone who donates $2 a month or more will go ahead and get that episode. And the old one will go down. So now's the time to really hop on there if you want to get that one. And we want to thank our supporters on Patreon because thanks to them, we're pretty much breaking even right now on our podcast, which is which is great. It's great to not pay someone else to have a job. <laughs> <laughs> we want to say a big thank you. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook at Insight. And that is a great place to discuss this or any of our other cases. I man our Twitter account, and it's at InsightfulPod. Allie handles our Instagram account at InsightPod. You can email us at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. And most importantly, you can find us on our website, this episode and all our previous episodes at InsightPod.com. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to iTunes or any of your other favorite podcast apps. That's how people find us, and it helps us stay in the charts. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a good night. Bye.